Here we go, here we go. Stop where you are just for a second. Let's pray, and then we will figure it out, okay? It's the fifth week of Lent. Christ says, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. John 17. O Lord, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given to us a pioneer of salvation and made him the true and eternal priest and mediator of his people, grant, we beg you, that we may hold fast to him in love, learn obedience in his discipleship, and be brought into the heavenly sanctuary through him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Hey, it's nice to see you. Everybody's good? Anything cooking I need to know about? Here at Lent 5, uh, you got some VIPs in the crowd. The Warners are here from Spain, so just raise your hand, Pastor. So these are some of the people you support in Spain. There you go. So that's, that's very nice. Uh, they come back every once in a while to visit, and um, because of some little bit of paperwork, they stayed a little longer, which means they got to come to St. John, and that's nice. If you throw money in the basket, uh, anything up to a million dollars will be given to Voice of Care. So drop it in, you know, it's a season for tithing and alms. Uh, let's see, what else? It is Lent 5, so Wednesday night, dinner, right? And then next week things will get busy, kind of think things through. Um, somebody who, did somebody order poems so the kids can sword fight? Did anybody do that? Yes. <laughs> did we get the safety model like this or did we get the pure pointed ones? All right, good. We haven't been sued for a couple of years, so, I mean, my favorite, you know, everybody wants to sword fight. Just, it's just in you. It's, it's a mark of original sin. In back, there's all sorts of things. Last week, you were asking me, you know, I sort of mentioned to you that you don't always get all the news. And then some, a few folks said, now, where could you get that kind of news? So I gave you uh, five places you can look. Now, here's the thing. Uh, people are offering you news, and they're also fundraising at the same time, so you just have to be careful. Nevertheless, if you're interested, there is good data on these places, especially about the persecution of Christians. And this is one of the places we talked about where our prayers come from last week. This is one of the places that we use. We often cross-check this stuff against the Catholic news services, which are not given to uh, you know, hyperbola, and so... You can, also, you can often get it from the Catholic news services. And uh, you can Google up just regular news, too, and you can all find a cross-listing. My point was that these things are not spoken of uh, with, any, with the kind of fervor that other things are spoken of. There's one in the middle there called International Justice Mission. Uh, it's a phenomenal thing. I mean, the guy should get the Nobel Peace Prize. He, you know, he's a, he was a young lawyer from, you know, I think, University of Chicago or Yale, started this thing, and basically they go around the world and help people, mostly in slavery, but other places. It's, he's Christian. It's not per se you know, freeing Christians, but if you just want your eyes opened about what the world really looks like, that, that, that site is completely reliable and uh, great news and a lot of good action. So there you go. Anything else I, I need to know about or you need to know about? We all good? All right, if you have this very long outline, which I do not promise to get through even today, because, you know, there's lots of things to talk about. Uh, we're just, we only got to about point four, but the point is, you remember earlier that we started by saying 
you're a member of the family and God listens to you. So by virtue of your baptism, you're included in the heavenly family and you have access to God as a child of God, as his beloved. So he listens to you. The heavenly father listens to you the way he listens to his beloved son. The heavenly father listens to you in the way that he listens to the Holy Spirit. And, of course, one of the great comforts that we don't talk enough about in Romans 8, we always talk about everything works together for the good of those who love God, but we often don't pay enough attention to the fact that in Romans 8 it says that Jesus is praying for you and the Holy Spirit is praying for you all the time. So this remarkable thing of making your needs known. Then we sort of moved on and we said, occasionally people will show up, this happens especially to pastors, but often to you too, and say, please help me with this. And we do not have the resources to cure your cancer every time or to fix your family every time. We can show you ways toward these things or how these sufferings can be accepted as a gift and a blessing. But what we do is go next door and we borrow some gifts from Jesus and we give these to you. And this is the way pastors are erased, for example, in absolution. You know, it's not the pastor who's doing this to you, but Christ through the pastor, through his office and through the pastor. We borrow that forgiveness and we send it on to you. We borrow these gifts, we send it on to you. Then, last week, we came to the notion of um, not just going to Jesus and bringing things from Jesus to people. Now we flip the script and we're going to take people to Jesus. And we started with this notion of Atlas who carries the world on his shoulders and imagine that you would be very much like that. You bring people to Jesus. And this is very personal often and especially can be um, unsettling at a time like Lent, which calls for great devotion. And then often what's brought to mind is when people, uh, especially people who are dear to us, parents or children or friends, or people you used to know at church and have fallen away, these people whom you care about very, very much have lapsed and don't come around. So I'm just at the, you know, I'm at point three, kind of in the middle above point four if you turn the page. So what happens to you is that we can have all these frustrations. The congregation isn't growing. Our family doesn't go to church. We have baptized children that don't come. People won't. Your kids, you know, you brought them up in the church, but now they don't baptize your grandchildren. It makes you crazy. And then the devil gets a hold of that and works hard on you and says, you know, what a horrible person you must be. It works hard on them. What horrible people you must be. And everybody gets the burden of a bad conscience. That is, we feel guilty and we feel shame and we don't like that, so we just simply ignore it. We don't know what to do and we feel shamed and humiliated. And we even think about ourselves, you know, what have I done? This is regularly happens when people have a tragedy in their family or they've gotten sick. You know, what have I done? You know, and sometimes the question, the answer is just simply, the world is a very rough place. And the thing that you need to remember is that Jesus loves you, Jesus is always with you, and that Jesus will never hurt you. But of course, that's not what the devil wants you to hear. So to be any good at all in our prayers, we need to have a clear vision of what's before us. So I'm at point number four. One of the gifts that God gives you is to bring folks to Jesus. 
This is very, very simple. And it's counterintuitive, and it's a bit of an old man thing. Or if you've been a parent a longer time, maybe then a shorter time, or maybe you're a grandparent. Your immediate reaction, often, when things go badly. When your kids don't come to church, when you have friends who don't come, when people fall away, where people just don't need church, or they say, hey, I don't, you know, your immediate reaction to that is all, often to bang away on them. And in fact, people often think of this even as a kind of apologetics or a defense. I'm extraordinarily nervous about this, and that's why we spent a couple of years in different directions, if you recall, over the past years about engaging people calmly who don't think as we think. It doesn't do you any good to tell people they're stupid, they're horrible. It doesn't do any good if you turn into a Pharisee. It doesn't help if always what people hear from you is condemnation. Condemnation is what they expect. The church has been painted you know, as people who judge others and condemn others. And sometimes, often, you know, that is who the church has been. And you couple that with things like the sexual abuse crisis. You, you, if you bundle three or four of these things together, we are our own worst enemy. And so, if you really love other people, you care about your children, your grandchildren, the people who have lapsed, and you say to yourself, what is it that I can do? The answer is biblical, but a bit counterintuitive, which is, this is just under four. You don't nag at them, and you don't criticize them, and you don't hammer away at them, but you bring them to Jesus. And you do that in your prayers. Jesus wants you home again. Jesus wants every one of his children home again. He wants your parents home and your grandparents. He wants your kids home and your grandkids. Jesus wants all his children home again. And the stance of the church must be to bring those children home and have them live as the beloved. To get there, and I just turned the page, there are all kinds of examples in Scripture where people carry somebody else to Jesus despite their circumstance. The scriptures are filled with them. You know these by heart. Now, just kind of pay attention that these people are um, sometimes, you know, quite um, interested in Jesus, sometimes even confessing them, but sometimes they just need a favor or a healing or a resurrection. So the Roman centurion comes and begs. He's got this servant who's paralyzed and he's suffering. He says, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. You know, this is the prayer that the celebrant says at the altar before he communes himself. And it's not a bad, if you see the pastor's lips moving, there's a 99 out of 100 chance that what he's saying just before he communes himself is, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, in this case, under the roof of your mouth. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof but say the word and I'll be healed. It's a very nice prayer for you to say as well, just before you receive the Eucharist. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but say the word and I'll be healed. And Jesus replies, of a Gentile, right? Hey, not even in Israel have I found this faith. Or the next one, you know, there's, I've often spoken to you about this over the years, there's nothing worse than losing a child. That's it. There's, there's nothing else that's even close. And so you have this very powerful father who comes and pleads to Jesus, you know, please raise my daughter. 
And Jesus listens to him, and he resurrects the daughter. Look, the daughter isn't doing anything. She's not worthy. She's not going to do good work. She doesn't believe in her own powers. Resurrection is the greatest example of what it means to believe in Jesus. Because we wake up, and all we can say is thank you. It's the perfect Lutheran thing, resurrection. It's nothing about you, and it's everything about Jesus. Or the next one, we had this a few weeks ago in morning Eucharist for a text, where the Canaanite mother comes and says, my daughter is troubled, and the disciples say, send her away, and then Jesus kind of says, you're just a puppy, and she says, you know, even puppies get the crumbs that fall from the table. And then Jesus talks about her more warmly than any other person in the Gospels. He just, he's just effusive about this woman who has brought, carried, borne her daughter to Jesus. Not even in Israel have found this faith. A woman, great is your faith. He doesn't say that to anybody else in Scripture. And he, because of the mother's persistence, heals that daughter. And then the next one, a royal official again, a Gentile. Jesus restores the boy because the father begs. And you remember that's the long distance one and he's walking home and then they say, when did it happen? He goes, yeah, that was yesterday about the seventh hour and the guy knows that's exactly the time that Jesus spoke. Boom. Jesus spoke and it happened. And then in, there are nine more like this. You can look, look them up in St. Matthew's Gospel if you want. And one of the great ones is in Matthew nineteen thirteen, where parents, there's nothing wrong with the kids. Kids are all fine. Nobody's dying. Nobody's hurt. Nobody's suffering. Nobody's demon-possessed. But parents have the savvy because they love their kids to bring them to Jesus. This is why your kids are in the sanctuary, not out. There's no nursery. Put your kids in the sanctuary. Why? So that they see and smell and hear and are touched by Jesus. They brought children that he would touch them. And Jesus put his hands on them and he touched them and he blessed them. So these parents carried their children to Jesus. And then number six, Mark 2, which is this great example where people know what to do but they can't get there, which is not unlike your own life where you know what to do but sometimes you're blocked by your own irritation or laziness or frustration or maybe you're just weary. Maybe you know your prayers. You've kept your prayers. Of course, the cross of this Lent. But you found out how difficult it really is to hold the prayer. You know, two or three or five times a day. Um, you're up against the world when that happens. So, Mark 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, it was reported he was at home. Lots of people gathered. There was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching, and of course, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they couldn't get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. You remember? Middle Eastern thatched roof. You can take the palm leaves off, and um, the wind can sort of blow through, down through the roof and out the door, up through the door. So this is kind of normal construction in a very humble place. You can... Um, so you got a you got a sunroof basically. They removed the roof. They made an opening. They dropped him down, and the paralytic is just lying there. And then this is the seminal verse, right? 
when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the paralytic. So basically, this is what it looks like. He looks at all you people over here, and these people over here win the lottery. How you doing? You doing all right? You still okay with that? <laughs> Little Lenten test for you, right? He looked, so, and this just puts to, to shambles the whole notion of, you know, the worst example is when somebody comes to you in the hospital and says to you, if you just believed a little stronger, this wouldn't happen. This just happened in the last month. Somebody, one of our members was somewhere, and somebody visited in the hospital and said, if you're just a better person, you wouldn't be sick. You kind of go, right? So what you want to say to people is, is, well, Jesus loves you, and Jesus will sort this out for you, and we're going to pray for you because we know what would be kind of the straightest, you know, straightest way home. But he looks at you and he blesses these people. You should, all the bells should be going off about your friends who don't come to church, about your kids who don't come to church, about your grandkids who don't come to church. He looks at you, he listens to you, and he blesses them. Some scribes were there and they said, why does he do that? Who does he think he is? And Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned him, it's more than just asking questions, of course. They have this anger about it. Why do you ask these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? But just so you know, the Son of Man fixes up the whole lot, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is this very interesting interplay of words and deeds. You can't tell sort of a raw healing. If, if you just had a healing, so if something just happened, you wouldn't actually naturally attribute that to Jesus. People would think there's all kinds of things, the spontaneous rates of healing or another God or they were a good boy or blah, blah, right? So healings do or good things in your life or even kindness does take explanation. However, um, you'll notice that it isn't always Jesus very rationally explains and then if everybody gets on board, then Jesus will do some good. No, no. Sometimes he says a few words, and then he does some good. But sometimes he just has the fun of flipping it around, where he does some good, and then he says a few words. It is true you can't know the deed without the words, but like so many things, Jesus just puts it all together because he's for you as a whole lot. And, and the man rose immediately and picked up his bed, and he went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So what do you do for people who are spiritually paralyzed? And maybe it would help with, for us to be more gentle with people and to be less judgmental. Maybe it would help if we thought about people in this way. If we think about them as um, spiritually paralyzed, People who have a, a guilty conscience, who feel guilty or feel ashamed, which just simply means that they think or they know in some sense that their, lie, their life doesn't align with the holiness of Jesus. And so they feel in some sense outcast or repelled. And this can be debilitating even for all of you and for me. If we live in shame or if we live in guilt, this can block us from both doing good, saying our prayers, going to the Eucharist, and from receiving good. We're always a little suspicious of the gifts. I know this happens to you because I've talked to some of you about it, but you're a little suspicious that the gifts come to you 
And then you're sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop. That's the Greek god. The Greek gods lift you up so that they can tear you down in your pride. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob blesses you, and then blesses you again, takes you into the promised land, and blesses you some more. And he was blessing you through the Red Sea, and he's going to bless you with a king and a Messiah, right? The Lord's default toward you and those whom you love is to have all his children home again. He only wants to do good, right? So the sermon this morning, he's just begging you to let you do some good. His interest is not that anyone is lost. So you know um, more paralytics than you ever imagined, and they would like to come to see Jesus if they could just see him, but they, they don't know how to come. They're broken or they're frozen. And if you just pound away at them, it's like asking a lame man to walk. People just don't have this capacity. Now, just kind of hear this correctly. If you just pound away at them, it's pure law. And you know the easiest thing for you to do, one of the easiest ways to sort out um, if it's the law and the gospel, is that very simply, um, the law has you doing the verbs and... um, The gospel has the Lord doing the verbs. So you should get better. You should be honest. You should be a better parent. You should stop gossiping. You can sort of sort this through. And the law by nature weighs you. It measures you. For non-Christians, it condemns. Uh, It makes you guilty, right? And have the Lord, the gospel is the resurrection. Amen. Thanks. More, please. Right? So this, the gospel is what the Lord does, and the law is what you do. It, this is kind of a simple practical way. This is, of course, a much bigger discussion. But just for this discussion, you might think of it in this way and see if it works for you. And so... Um, to ask people who are unbelievers or who um, have lapsed to just sort of load them up and say, you should be a better boy, you should be a better girl, is to only increase their pain. Most people know this. Yes, there are hard-hearted people and there are people who are completely blind, but most people fall into you know, the eighth grade boy category. They're um, putting up a big front, but you could make them cry in 10 sentence, seconds if you really wanted to. As Bart Simpson said, making a, make, making a teenage boy depressed is like shooting fish in a barrel. So, I mean, you can, right? You can level people. And, of course, what we forget is that, you know, we did this a couple of weeks. Grace abounds. I'm sorry, sin abounds. Grace super abounds. And um, just as a sidebar, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. It's a couple times in the chapter, but it starts at 8 1 and it goes through. So, for you all, the law is a useful thing. And you should not um, misunderstand the law is a holy thing, it's a perfect thing, 
And for you and for me, it does accuse. But unless we're in pure rebellion, there is no condemnation. This is very, very important because we move very easily from this to this. And that's an illicit move for people who have been baptized, who are in Christ's technical language. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is technical New Testament language. This is in Romans 6. It's used heavily throughout, including Romans 8. So now you start to see what the landscape looks like. And the normal course, which Christians often have, which we often have, which feels good to us in one sense, which also often is born out of our anger and our fear is to hammer away at folks. Well, at least I did my job. At least I put it out there. I have clean hands. Well, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Being a human being is a bit more nuanced than that. Being a parent is more nuanced than that. Right? It is, of course, that you need to give people the law. The law is a good thing and perfectly perfectly kept it is life, right? So you have to really understand this is a holy thing. But because of who we are, sinful and baptized sinners, the most important thing is the correct proportion or the correct application. And this doesn't come naturally. It's a wisdom that is hard gained over the course of time as a son, a daughter, a parent, a pastor, a teacher, and you in whatever else you do. You okay with this? Are you just kind of, I'm just kind of going, yes, please. Is there any value in tough love? Sure. Yeah, is there, so the question is, is there any value in tough love? Yes, right? So we'll probably, we'll, I'm not sure we'll get all the way there today, but it's kind of the next thing. Tough love is terribly important. But um, it's a grievous thing, for example, when a parent puts a child out of the house, right? Which is a kind of a classic tough love maneuver. Yes, it can have some value. The stakes are very high because if your kid's sleeping in a drug house or under a bridge or in a car with people he doesn't know, suddenly you have a whole other set of problems. And you really have to be sure that you're willing to pull the trigger on that set of problems, right? You can have this set of problems or that set of problems. And these things are often done in prayer with great trepidation, and often we don't know what the answer is going to be. If we knew what the answer would be, we would do it, right? A lot of life, as you know, um, is feeling your way and trying to be faithful and asking for everything to be forgiven. People who would give you sort of easy answers. Well, you know, say this, and then this will happen. Yeah, that's not how life works. Um, when you say this, you could have said it right, wrong, or indifferently. And, by the way, there's a range of things that can happen because you're working with people who respond. So what, of course, you're trying to do is speak so they can hear. You size up every person individually. You know this about your own children. You don't love all your kids the same way or even equally. You love each of your kids individually just like God loves all of you individually. Everything is appropriate to one person, and there's no other person like you. 
And so this is the, you know, this is the trick of being a parent, or this is the trick of being a pastor, which is you have to size up this one person. And if they're not honest with you, or if they don't tell you everything, or if you don't know all the circumstances, or maybe they're so honest with you, you've never seen your honesty like this before. And then you try to figure out exactly what will make them better. This, of course, is the genius and the holiness of Jesus, that he gets it right every time. And yet even for Jesus, you remember that people don't always respond. That young man who was invited to be disciple number 13, sell all you've got and come with me. And the man went away sad because he loved his stuff a lot. So all you can do, I mean, of course you do. You speak God's word. You speak it the law. You speak the gospel. You try to love. You try to come to this with pure hands. But what you can be sure that you can do, which cannot possibly go wrong, it's perhaps the one thing that can't possibly go wrong, is to pray for other people and carry them to Christ. It's impossible for a prayer in the name of Jesus to go wrong. Right? And, you know, Kleinig would even push this to the point where he would say, if a man says... Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. He's become a Christian. So there's a way that prayer makes people a Christian if they take it on their lips. Because the scriptures say, of course, no man can say that without the Holy Spirit in their heart. And this helpless appeal to God for, for, you know, his gifts. You know, what? part of the reason I'm sort of going on about this is it's very easy. The easiest thing in the world is to condemn other people. The easiest thing in the world is to break other people. It's easy. I mean, look around. I mean, if you stayed home from church and watched Sunday morning television, it's just, it's just one show after another where people are saying how horrible other people are. This takes absolutely no skill. What takes something divine is to love people in spite of themselves. So all these Gentiles come to Jesus, and he loves them in spite of themselves. And they come, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Okay. So I just, I just want you to be, to be gentle. Yes, sometimes it goes all the way um, where you do have to make a call, and things have to be tough. But with fear and trembling, we do those things. And, and also then with respect for people who have to do them, because... Um, It's like a man who beats his wife. She doesn't do him any favors by sticking around and staying in the way, which was very often the church's old advice. It's horrible. So these things are difficult to talk about, and um, they're not always the party line that we've been taught but the party line often was sorely mistaken. You have to be extraordinarily careful with these things, and in the end, everything is done in love, right? Because this is the way of Jesus. I'll show you in just a moment. We'll get there. So, um, kind of at point eight. You still okay? Just questions about any of that? Well, I wish I wouldn't have asked. Oh! <laughs> Don't all rush to the front at once. Yes, my friend. Uh, when we get
So the point is, with tough love, expect the worst, and among the worst is that not, it, nothing changes. Fair? Yeah. So I mean, here's the thing. Because what happens is you work your way all the way to tough love, and then you think you're finally going to push the button, and everything, everything's going to be great, right? You might push the button, and everything's going to be worse. And you have to be ready for that. Life doesn't work this way. People who think life works this way just don't know anything about life. They need to meet some people. You know, I can introduce them to some people who can show you that it doesn't work this way. What do you do when there's someone that you love and they persistently say, you do not love me unless you acknowledge that this particular thing that I've done is good and right? Yeah, great. That's a great question. So um, what do you do if somebody says, you say, I love you, and they say, you don't love me unless you acknowledge that what I've done is right? That's super well played, young man. So um, of course, the definition, uh, you know, Pastor Bukes gave a genius of a sermon on, on love um, at a morning Eucharist a couple of months ago. He, if you wrote him, he'd send you a copy, I think. Uh, it was at 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it was just brilliant. So, um, the, you know, toward that, um, love is an objective thing. So to love is to do good. Or another way I saw it described by a very bright guy was this week was to love is to will good for others, which seems to work. So when people say, you don't love me because you don't accept me, what they say, what they, what they mean is, um, our relationship is built on, um, what you, you'd make a mistake to say having no standards. It's, our relationship is built on you having my standards, right? Which is not the same as having no standards. And the church is still savvy enough to say, hey, there's some things that are just not good for you that these things debase you or they make you less than human, subhuman in some sense, or they hurt you. Now, if people carry on with that, uh, with whatever it is they've got going, your response to that is the same as Jesus' response to sinners and tax collectors. You stick by them. Right, so even in the sermon this morning, there's so many different ways that that could go. But even in the sermon this morning, it's the refusal to be loved, right? The master never stops loving. It's the refusal to be loved. So, and love is, if you will, in a, in a weird way, love is independent of what anybody thinks about, what anybody thinks it is. Of course, love is meant to establish this relationship. But this is love, that I would put him first and that everything I do would be good for him. And no matter what he does, I live in forgiveness toward him. And it does not work by force. It works only by gift. So, and the resurrection is the cleanest thing because, you know, here's this guy, you know, and you sort of pump his life back, his heart back to life. And then, like, the, he can either wake up and say, thank you so much, I owe you everything, or I'm out of here, jerk. Right? So, not the relationship and not somebody else, the objective love of God, which is to do good, 
for others or to will good for others. To love is to do good. To love is to will good. And good is defined by what is holy. Love God and serve your neighbor. So it's an, people are tricking you into, a, 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 they're, they're defining love subjectively when you know that love is objective. Love is what lives in the heart of God. And the best that you can do with people is to make a gentle case for that. And if you, you know, if you are all the things that Jesus is not as he goes to Calvary next week, you'll get one reaction from people. And if you look down from the cross when they've crucified you and say, Father, forgive them, I love them, but they just have no idea what they're doing, you'll get another reaction. And beyond that, it is not your business. And I probably should have gotten to that sooner. Beyond saying your prayers and living in love and striving toward holiness, it is not your business. It is not your business. This is why there's a Sabbath. You come to church, you receive the gifts, you say your prayers, you go home knowing all you've done all you can do because God has done all that he can do to you, and you live in that through the week. Of course you make mistakes. Of course you have things to repent of. Of course you've been cruel. Of course you failed as a son. Of course you failed as a mother. Of course, of course. We kneel down at the beginning of every liturgy and we say this because we know that it's true. But we're not going to live inside that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, right? So anyway, to kind of swoop all the way back around, what you are meant to do is to love other people, which doesn't always have to do with straightening them out. You can't straighten them out. And if you think you can straighten them out, I'm very willing to let one of you teach confirmation or high school. (laughs) Because right now, Pastor Bukes and Pastor Nelson are down there. They can't control them. They're just trying to contain them. Okay? (laughs) Love people and you pray for them. Just just watch what happens. This is beautiful stuff, right? So kind of at... at, um, Nine, and I've said this, Jesus lets us exercise our faith in prayer for other people. And as I said before, when we talked about the person who comes at night, so Jesus gives you unexpected visitors, so you can borrow his gifts and give them to him. Jesus puts people at your door. In the same way, Jesus puts people in your sight lines. And so when you see a paralytic in front of you, and sometimes you don't have to look very hard, This is your opportunity to love, which is to do good to them, right? Jesus gives broken and frozen folks access through our prayers. So I just turned the page. The point is, prayer is an exercise of faith not only for ourselves, but for others. And Jesus does this not only for our physical needs, but our spiritual needs and our deepest need, which is our sin. You know, there's lots of people, I'm sure, that you pray for, that they would turn away from the horrible things they're doing, the sinful things, and come home, the prodigal son story. If the Bible only had one story, that would be the story to have, the prodigal son. There's every, you don't need to, if you know the prodigal son story back to front, you got it, right? 
So um, I'm just kind of at the bottom under 10. Any unbeliever is spiritually disabled. We make it worse if we demand that they walk when they have no legs to walk. Right? Because now not only is Satan accusing them while the world is consoling them, that's a bad combination. Now you, the last source of love, of God's love spoken to them, of true love spoken to them, now you condemn them as well. And just circling back to, you know, on both sides with the tough love. Um, However you would execute that if you ever had to do it, you would have to make sure that it was done with a gentleness, that the last look on your face would be a look of total love. When your kid goes out your door, your face would be the look of the father when the prodigal son took everything and walked away. And you remember that that face continued to look every day for his son, right? Out over the horizon. So, um, well, I'm turning the page. When kids fall away, we think we didn't indoctrinate them properly. But what's really happened, and I really think this, this is the, and you know, sometimes I can read this in the faces of people and kids at the, at the altar. It's so interesting because one of the ways I get to know you is giving you the Eucharist. And um, you tell me everything, right? Especially you, Kirby. <laughs> Check. <laughs> you say we don't talk enough. Well... And sometimes you can read it in the, in the faces of kids when they come. You can just, you know, you can read like, what I did last night, I wish I would have never done that. You can just, you can just see it, right? And, you know, a pastor can do a couple things with that. He can reinforce it mercilessly and assure them that they are the worst child that ever lived. Or he can act like the father in the prodigal son story. And when the kids start to make excuses, like everybody else was doing it, or I'm 16 and this is when it starts, or I've known that drug dealer since I was five years old, or she's been my girlfriend for two years. There's no excuse for your sins. In the prodigal son story, he stops the son from doing a deal or making excuses. There's, there's no excuse for sin. You might as well not even offer it. But what there is is love for sinners, right? And so I really, you know, when I, John and I talked about this one day, oh, probably over a beer after pastor's thing or something, but, you know, he, he made this observation that often it's not the kids are hard-hearted, they don't want to come back to church. It's that they're too ashamed and they know what all you good people would think about them. And you, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. You are good people. And most of you are striving to do good and to live a holy life. And with your sins, they're often contained or shielded, which is actually a benefit because there's no great joy in sinning publicly. But when people look at you, see, what do they presume? 
I could never be like that, or I'm different, or I'm unclean, or they're in and I'm out. And if you've had kids, you know that over the course of, you know, time, and if you've had kids around your house and you've been around, you, and your own life, you know, there are particular times in your life where you fall in particular directions. Odds are, despite the best upbringing, and going to the Eucharist all the time. And if we respond to that with the law, see, now the key is not that the sin doesn't matter, but the people are already ashamed. They are already guilty. They already know their need of God. They already know they've broken the commandments. So if you say, by the way, you've broken the commandments, you're not helping at all. In fact, you're, you're piling guilt on people who are already guilty. Jesus does not do that. He never does that. For people who are ashamed, who are broken, Jesus comes near to them, and with a word or a touch, he transfers his holiness to them. He makes wrongs right. He makes all things new. He resurrects them. And you and I are meant to be on the side of the angels, right? So consider that when you come, just last thing, we've got to go to church, but just kind of think about that. You know, next time there's a kid that you think is trouble, or even an adult, you know, your judgment is we'd be better off without them. Or, you know, we always have to do extra when they're here. Yeah, I mean, who is that helping and why does that even come up? That's not the way of Jesus. It's just not. Jesus takes all comers all the time. Thankfully, and I should say this, I mean, I was actually talking this morning at the vicar, with the vicar at the, at the door this morning. People coming through, and I was like, I love these people so much. There's, here's what you should know about these people. Or even a couple of days, I said, you know, 15 years ago, I had a rub with that person, and you would never know it now. The way they embrace me and love me, it's a beautiful thing. And kind of person after person who came in. It was just kind of fun greeting people at the door saying, these are people who, you know, we've sort of put it all together, right? We're not perfect, but our default is not judgment. So what I want you to do is, and you know, you, only, you don't have much Lent left, but what I want you to do is, if you can pray for each other, maybe if you're not doing anything or maybe you've got a little extra time, you know, this week and next week at late, uh, set a couple of hours a day, set the alarm on your clock, Morning and evening, or the normal hours of nine and twelve and three, just just set your and set your timer for two minutes and pray for this congregation. Pray for the kids or the people who are lost in this congregation. Pray for those people without judgment. Pray that God would be merciful to them, and even your enemies. Pray that Jesus would sort them out according to the gospel, not according to your designs. And then it's the Lord's business. Okay, when you've done your work, it becomes the Lord's business. You, you may not see it, you know, this week or next week or six months from now. You may die before you see it, but the Lord's faithful to what he promises. Say your prayers. Try to love people. Okay. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, friends. Uh,
see you through the next couple of weeks.